who's blindfolding you? We're going to have to take... We need a volunteer to blindfold the person who picks the raffle tickets, to hold their hands over Elisa's eyes. First person up here gets, gets the job. <laughs> well, all right. <laughs> some of which are out of print collector's items, all of them signed by the authors who are here. And the first book we're going to raffle off is Dorothy Allison's book, Trash. Go. The winner is Gilbert Elbaz. Gilbert? Gilbert here? We may raffle. Oh, okay. So what are you... Well, is he here or not? I don't see him. Okay, well, huh? Oh, we got... Gilbert? Okay. Please go back in. Okay. The next book is uh, Melanie K. Kantrowitz's The Issue is Power, Essays on Women, Jews, Violence, and Resistance. And the winner is... Candace Lyle Hogan. Candace? Well, we're going to line them up because we have to move quickly. Okay. Next book is The Revolution of Little Girls by Blanche McCrary Boyd. And the winner is Ilsa Gilbert. Gilbert is a big winning name tonight. The next one, this is a, a really a treasured item. I, I don't think you can get it at all. It's Paper Daughter by Jill Johnston, Autobiography in Search of a Father. And the winner? Diane Mullins. Yay. Okay. Um, we don't have here, but it will be mailed to the winner, a collection of plays by Irene Fornes. And that is Camler B. B. Camler, probably. A B. Camler, if you have any doubt that this address will actually make it possible for us to mail a book to you, maybe you'll come up and clear it up. Thank you. Okay, and the next book is a, this is a wonderful book, Tradition, an anthology of young black writers. There are a couple of pieces by Nicole Breedlove, who will be on the second panel in this, in this book. And the winner is Nancy Robertson. Oh, that great assembly line technique here. The next one is, is another book by Irene Fornes, uh, Fefu and Her Friends. One by Elsa First. Elsa, are you here? Yay. Okay. 
Uh, Homegirls, a black feminist anthology edited by Barbara Smith. All these books are just so wonderful. Gail Esterman. Oh, right. Your B. Oh, first. Right. We don't have that book yet. Bertha Harris's Confessions of Cherubino, another out-of-print book. Ellen Garvey. We need to keep this up for the middle. Okay, Dorothy Allison's Bastard out of Carolina. Randy Trumbach. And another uh, one generous, really generous contribution by Barbara Smith, another issue, another issue, another copy of Homegirls, a black feminist anthology edited by Barbara Smith. And the winner is Sheila Gray. <laughs> Sheila? Okay. Thank you very much. We're now going to have the next panel. I made a slip and I gave the pink slips back to some of the people who had who picked up books. And we would love to have your names for our mailing list. So if you'd bring back your pink slips, then we'll invite you to come visit us again. We're done. You can take the blindfold off. Okay. That if the next panel would come up. Um, and uh, the moderator, Ruby Rich, is going to introduce the panel, so, so I won't do that, but I will introduce Ruby Rich. Oh, she's a cultural critic. She's just now completing a uh, collection of pieces entitled Projections, Essays on Film and Sexuality, and she'll be on the editorial board of a new journal of gay and lesbian studies to be launched this summer called GLQ. Thank you. Okay, part two. See. Well, I can vaguely see you, I guess. Let's see. I guess I'll introduce people first. Then I'll make a kind of introduction to the theme of the panel, and then we'll just keep going. Okay. We have to be very close to the mic. Is that it? Okay. Like, you know, two inches from the mic is it. Okay. Uh, to my right and your left, here at this end of the table, is Blanche McCrary Boyd, the author of the recent novel, The Revolution of Little Girls, which title I expect uh, you may have heard of. Um, the latest news is that she's just sold her new novel, not yet written, Terminal Velocity, just, just today, so it's very heartbreaking news. <laughs> is also the author of The Redneck Way of Knowledge, Mourning the Death of Magic, and Nerves. Um, she's the recipient of Lambda and Farrow Grumley Awards. Um, was previously a staff writer at The Village Voice, uh, wrote 
new journalism or autobiograph autobiographical essays, such as those collected in the Redneck Way of Knowledge. Uh, she is now, she says she's now been kicked upstairs and is a professor of English at Connecticut College and has a dog named Spike. That is a female dog named Spike. Okay. Uh, to my right, next to her, to your left, is Melanie K. Kantrowitz, who is the author of The Issue is Power, Essays on Women, Jews, Violence, and Resistance, as well as My Jewish Face and Other Stories, and a novel in progress as well, switching genres, uh, tentatively entitled Eyes. Uh, you may know the anthology that she co-edited, The Tribe of Dina, a Jewish women's anthology. For four years, she was the editor and publisher of Sinister Wisdom, one of the nation's oldest lesbian feminist journals. She lives in New York City and is director of Jews for Racial and Economic Justice. And there's a biographical note that um, she feels, and I agree, is especially important to include, that, uh, namely that she graduated from City College in the days of no tuition. <laughs> and earned a PhD in comparative literature from the University of California at Berkeley in what she calls the days of adequate financial aid to graduate students. <laughs> Those long ago times. At this end of the table, to my left and your right, is Dorothy Allison. Uh, author of Bastard Out of Carolina, um, as you all know by now, finalist for the National Book Award. And also the author of Trash, which won two Lambda Literary Awards in 1988. Um, she's, she insists on describing herself as 43 years old and tired. <laughs> But nevertheless, she's a writer in residence at The Lab in San Francisco. Uh, she has a dog named Butch. <laughs> a also female a female dog. dog. <laughs> There's a theme here. And she also has a five-month-old son named Wolf. Okay. Next to me, to my left, your right, is Nicole Breedlove whose name many of you in New York City know. Some of her poems are just out in a new anthology called In the Tradition, an anthology of young black writers published by Harlem River Press. So if any of you are despairing about where the future part of these panels is supposed to be, uh, pick up this book, which is filled with poets in their 20s. Um, Nicole is now 22 and is a student at Barnard and has already been published in Outweek, in The Voice, in Vanity Fair. Uh, you may have seen her uh, two years ago on PBS in a wonderful show about spoken poetry called Words in Your Face that was, I think, on a live from Off Center, if I remember right. And she's part of the poetry group Niakomba, which means purposeful creativity in Swahili. Swahili, sorry, I'm sorry. See what else I can do wrong up here? Many things, that's the first. Okay, um, before uh, we start ranging back and forth along this table, and we are going to try to do that, we're, gonna, we're going to endeavor to have a dialogue um, with one another. They are. I'll just try to referee it. But before I get to that stage, I thought I would just say a few things um, 
seizing my role as moderator here um, that I thought about while coming here um, into this um, very honorable company uh, to meet with you tonight. And I think it's significant uh, that we are having this meeting now in the early days of the Clinton administration. Um, maybe I'm a sappy optimist, I don't know. But um, it, it feels as though it's no accident. It seems to me that after 12 years of repressive amnesia, that once again, we may be entitled to memory. That once again, we may be able to think about ourselves and our lives and, and how we've come this far and how far it is that we've come, which um, as a lesbian in the 90s sometimes doesn't seem very far. So I want to thank um, uh, Clags and Penn for holding a lesbian event because it seems to me that in the 90s we very rarely get a lesbian event, not a gay and lesbian event, not a feminist and lesbian event, but an actual live <laughs> lesbian event. And I, for one, really appreciate that. But this is also, above all, an event concerned with literature. So um, I, for some reason, I can't imagine why, but for some reason this, this set me to thinking about my junior high school English teacher. <laughs> um, and I, I had the privilege um, growing up in Boston, which was not necessarily a privilege in the 50s, but I had the privilege of going to a school by the name of Girls Latin School. Any alums here? No, too bad. Um, which is what today would be called a magnet school. Um, back then it was known as the one place you could go to to escape the public school system. And um, in the seventh eighth, and you had to take Latin, and you had to diagram sentences endlessly on the blackboard. But if you were a very good student and did all of these things, uh, then Zabel Tamizian, the feared and terrifying eighth um, uh, eighth and ninth grade English teacher would lend you books from her personal library that she kept locked in a cupboard at the front of the room. Now this was a dubious pleasure, dubious honor, because you didn't get to pick them. She picked them and gave them to you. So this privilege was sort of like getting extra assignments. But in recent years when I've thought back upon that particular form of education, which was a very classical education in an all-female environment taught by teachers who were all as we called them then, spinsters, because at that time in the Boston Public Schools you weren't allowed to be married if you were a teacher. And many of whom were Radcliffe graduates, many of whom had been suffragists, and who all very much believed and instructed us in the belief that you could jump class through education. That was really the lesson of Girls Latin School, um, that if you were smart enough, you could be very poor, but you could jump class. And what did she give us to read? And these are the three things that I remember her giving us to read. Mrs. Gaskell. She had a huge collection of Mrs. Gaskell. So what did she give us? Literature that reflected an all-female environment. What else did she give us? Alexander Dumas. I remember huge illustrated editions of The Count of Monte Cristo and The Three Musketeers. So she gave us an all-female environment, and then she gave us adventure that even as a girl you could have adventure. And then what was the third sort of thing she gave us? The book that I remember was called With a Sword in Her Hand, Biography of a Suffragist. <laughs> and so she gave us politics. And it seemed to me later that I'd actually been given a very good lesbian literary education. <laughs> anyway, that's the past. And I want to go on to this panel, which according to, you know, according to the advertisements you've been promised is about the present and the future. So, 
I think we're going to begin um, with some statements uh, according to which these writers can position themselves in terms of this theme, um, in terms of this theme of lesbian literature, and start out by giving you a sense of their thinking on it, and we'll then go on to talk about some more specific questions. Blanche, can I make you start? I have no idea why I said I would start this, but um, my heart is pounding right now. The, the first thing I want to say, can everybody hear me? Okay, is that it, it feels great to be here tonight with some people who are real heroes to me, Bertha Harris and Jill Johnston and, and uh, Dorothy Allison. And it feels like a real honor just, just to be part of this. Um, you know, when, when the revolution of little girls came out, no one reviewed it as a lesbian book, even though the protagonist is a lesbian. And, um, and so I went on tour with it and everything, and, and uh, no one ever asked me about whether I thought of myself as a lesbian writer until I won these, um, the Pharaoh Grumley Award and the Lambda Award. And then I, was in I flew down to Washington to be on this radio show, and the woman said, do you think of yourself as a lesbian writer? And I said, uh, let me have 30 seconds to think about it, okay? Because I haven't thought about it in a long time. Um, you know, like a lot of people here tonight who I see from political situations in the early 70s, uh, you know, I carry some scars from back then. And sometimes I feel like a Vietnam vet. And I can't tell whether it's the car backfiring or somebody with a machine gun. Um, at any rate, you know, how I, I think of myself as a writer and a lesbian. And I think of myself as a writer and white. I think of myself as a writer and a woman. I think of myself as a writer and a southerner. And I, I think of myself as a writer and an American. Um, I think of myself as a writer and an alcoholic. All of those things have, have profoundly influenced how I see the world. And um, you know, when the Redneck Way of Knowledge came out. I never used the word lesbian in it. I, I thought, why, why do I have to use this term? You know, the term lesbian was in, first of all, let me say that I certainly think of myself as a lesbian. But the, <laughs> the, the term, you know, was, was invented by male sexologists in the late 19th century to describe experiences that they didn't share and, and had no comprehension of. And I try to remember that we actually live in the century in which female sexuality as an independent force is, was discovered. The female orgasm was, was discovered and described in the 20th century. And I don't, um, I want to be very careful how I allow terms to back me into any kind of corner. Um, you know, my, my experience as a, for me the issue is about independent female sexuality, the issue is about, about women independent of, of men. And, um, and to try to be, you know, real careful about all that. The, uh, when I, I was speaking in Philadelphia, and I was reading this chapter from my novel where, um, you know, our heroine, Ellen, is trying to lose her virginity in a girdle at Duke in 1962, <laughs> unsuccessfully. And uh, um, anyway, this is the heroine who deflowers herself. And, and afterwards, somebody raised her hand and said, when does Ellen come out? And I was like bewildered, and I said, come out? And she said, and I said, you mean as a lesbian? And she said, right. And I said, Ellen came out. Um, you know, this is about what happened to Ellen in her life that's not about that. And, um, you know, 
I don't think that straight people go around saying, hey, you know, I feel, uh, I'm a heterosexual. I, don't th I think they just feel normal. And I feel profoundly normal. Um, and that is one of, one of the, the gifts of my maturity. I feel absolutely normal. I'm the most normal version of myself I can possibly be. And, um, you know, and so, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, when I, I asked, does lesbian writing have to address lesbianism as a subject? For me, the answer is yes, but it's certainly not the only subject for me that I'm interested in. And I, I can see that other writers might arrive at a very different um, uh, point of view about that. Um, anyway, I'm really glad, I'm, I'm very interested to hear what other people have to say, and so now I'm going to turn this mic over. Okay. Melanie? Well, one of the things that I value about writing, and this is quite exclusive about what, uh, from the question of whether or not your writing gets published, is that I feel like when I write something down, then it's there and it helps keep me honest. So I, when I was thinking about this panel, I thought about um, around 1975, I wrote something for an issue of Heresies on being a lesbian feminist artist. They did an issue on that. And I wrote a statement in which I said, lesbian is who I am, feminist is how I think. And the second thing that I said in that statement was something about how when I came out as a lesbian and stopped caring what men thought of me, I was able to write. And it was useful to me to come back and remember that, to remember that, that for me, um, coming out as a lesbian meant that I was able to write and that whatever I am writing about, that something about that um, claiming of my own power made me also able to write about everything else in the world. I feel like in, in 1993, where we are, I'm looking at this subject of being a lesbian writer in two um, contradictory ways. One is that I take for granted my lesbianism. You know, sort of what Blanche was saying, that, that um, I, it isn't always certainly the subject that I'm writing about, although when I'm writing fiction, many of my characters will be lesbians. Uh, my main characters are usually not always lesbians. And I take for granted the existence of lesbian characters and they appear um, profusely in my work. So there's that, uh, that um, ability to take lesbianism for granted that is certainly a luxury of our times. And at the same time, um, election day of 1992, I found myself not by accident in Portland, Oregon, which is where I came out in the um, early 70s and where Measure 9, one of the most hateful of all homophobic measures, went down to defeat, but not a very strong, as not as strong a defeat as we would have liked. And I was there partly to be in solidarity with, with the community of gays and lesbians out there, so that in a time when I can take for granted lesbianism is also a time when lesbians and gays are profoundly threatened and I say that, so I say it here to remind us, in case we need reminding, to remind myself that, um, that everything that we've won is also totally under attack. <laughs> you 
you know, at the same moment and also to carry for a moment a message, and this is not separate from the subject of myself as a writer because I'm a writer and I'm an activist, pretty much intertwined, and sometimes the writing that I do is fiction and sometimes it's essays and sometimes it's press releases and sometimes it's leaflets, that's all writing. But that one of the messages that I feel it's important to carry back from Oregon and from Measure 9 is the kind of coalition that lesbians and gays put together in Oregon to defeat Measure 9, and that was a multiracial, multicultural coalition. And I think that's really important to remember that um, where we'll find our allies, where our natural allies are, and how we better make it our business to find each other. So I think that's what I'm going to say for now. Okay, yeah, Dorothy? Well, I, um, okay. I agreed to do this on the condition that I wouldn't have to do this. Um, well, <laughs> <laughs> which is that I would not have to write a Dorothy, speech. Dorothy, how, how do you see yourself in relation yeah. to the subject of uh, <laughs> lesbian literature? Good. Just briefly. I know her address. Okay, I'll do this quick. Um, I actually believe that I'm on this panel because after having been disreputable for so many years, I'm about as respectable as I'm going to get all of a sudden. <laughs> don't, it's not going to last, so don't worry. Um, I identify as a working class lesbian. As a writer, I identify as a storyteller. I know all those terms about character driven, you know, language driven, plot driven. Uh, I understand them and I teach writing to young people and so I know how to talk about it. But at bottom, I don't care about any of that. Um, I tell stories to save people who have disappeared and to make real people who kept me alive. And that's what I believe is important to me as a writer. There is no division in my life between my identity as a lesbian writer or my identity as a working class writer or my absolute identity as a pervert in this society. Um, I absolutely believe that I might even be on the norm. I think the statistics are a little off for what we all actually do, but I know deep inside that I'm a pervert. I know this. <laughs> and this makes me enormously proud. <laughs> and occasionally a little terrified, but where I come from, terror is no reason not to do what you're going to do anyway. <laughs> I absolutely believe that the enterprises of writing and publishing are distinctly separate. I believe that publishing for queers in this country is and must be consciously political, I do not believe that you can publish with the mainstream presses if queer presses do not exist and that you have to do everything you can to keep them in business. I organize my life to make sure that is possible. But as a writer, I'm actually 43 years old in poor health and tired, and I need a living. I can't work waitress no more, and I can't cook worth a damn anymore. And I no longer have the patience to even try to teach in universities. So that if a publisher can't pay me enough money to plan my life, I'm in real trouble. Like most of the working class writers, I know I juggle my life to survive. I'm doing a hell of a lot better at it than I've ever done. I intend to continue.
finally, I want to say I'm here because of the people on the earlier panel. I'm here because I took a writing class with Bertha Harris in 1975, and she got me to finish my first short story all the way through, stand up in front of a room, read it to the women, and seduce one of them with it. <laughs> I'm here because I trust a few people. I trust Barbara Smith. I'm learning to trust Ruby Rich. <laughs> I trust Blanche Boyd. I trust... I trust Melanie K. Kantrowitz, and mostly because of the writing they've done, the stories they've told. I absolutely believe that if I do not keep standing up and saying, I am a lesbian writer, it's like Tinkerbell. Somewhere, a little baby lesbian is going to go out in the dark. <laughs> so, I have a lot more to say. <laughs> Nicole? Right. I guess I'm that baby lesbian, so. <laughs> and ageism is kind of weird, because I'm the youngest one on either panel, so. You're the weird. only young one on either panel. <laughs> but I, I do want to point out that this is in no way representative of young black lesbian writers, and we are out here in full force. I just want to say that. Um, I don't, know, I don't know quite what to talk about, um, about lesbian writing. It just, this sounds kind of weird, but um, I call myself a lesbian writer, um, but most of my themes and, and motifs in, in my writing, you could say, does not address uh, lesbian issues, um, particularly because I feel I am all three things, and it is very difficult to juggle being black and being a lesbian and being, being you know, all those three things at the same time, and in addition to being young. Um, and it's hard. It's hard to go to school dealing with that. Um, <clears throat> but what I wanted to say was just to talk about my poetry. My poetry is very angry, and it addresses me as a black woman. And you won't necessarily know I'm a lesbian unless you, you get those one or two lines in there when I talk about, you know, when I was beat up in Bensonhurst, or I talk about the landlord coming to Bed-Stuy to get the rent. <laughs> you won't hear about that stuff. Um, but my, my poetry is very unapologizing, and it's very revolutionary, if I could say so. <laughs> um, and I want, I want my voice heard. And... I think it's very important that I'm here, you know, um, particularly because I don't see a lot of people of color in this room, you know, and um, I'm, just, I'm just glad that I'm here <laughs> to represent that. Thank you. I said to Nicole right before she spoke, isn't it great not to have to be dealing with all that history, <laughs> listening to the rest of us go on? Um, okay, we're going to try to run our way through various questions, and I'll, I'll ask some of them, and other panelists may ask others, and then eventually we'll open it up to yours. Um, one of the questions that I want to just throw out to people is the question of, of who you see as your readers, beyond anybody you're looking at in this room. When you're writing, who are your readers? What communities or constituencies do you see yourself as addressing or coming from or talking to? And what is the contract that you see that you have with the reader? 
Um, what's the kind of call and response that you're trying to engage in with your work? These are all different versions of the same question. And just as a foil for this question, I'll recall something that I was quite shocked by some years ago when I once attended a television conference in Edinburgh and heard somebody from the BBC who was a television programmer say, when I make these programs, I like to think of the queen watching them. <laughs> <laughs> that queen. <laughs> so, um, in, in, in contrast, um, would anybody here like to speak about this question? <laughs> oh, I'll go first. Good. I knew I could count on you. Um, actually, in terms of audience, what I think about is, is uh, I, I'm actually writing for about six people. And I have them arranged in a constellation in my head, and I figure if those six people understand what I'm saying, then a lot of people are going to understand what I'm saying. And one is my editor from the Village Voice, M. Mark, who taught me to always write for the smartest person in the room and talk up to the reader, and that I would stay very clear if I did that. And um, another is a, a friend of mine who's a straight woman who's an academic um, and has a doctorate from Yale, and I figure, well, if she likes it, then I probably haven't used any words wrong. And, um, <laughs> And she's tough, you know. I mean, uh, I mean, you know, she's a real uh, literary critic. So I, I take her opinion very seriously. My mom. I figure if my mom gets it, then it's in clear enough words that um, she might not like what it is, but she got it. And um, <laughs> um, and you know, lesbian friends who I feel like will keep me clear about um, whether I'm being true to myself about that. Um, anyway, there's just a small group of people and I, I sort of run them through them, you know, chapter by chapter and say, well, now these people get this? And that covers a lot of bases for me. And that way I don't really have to think about, am I writing for straight people? Am I writing for gay people? I just think about, am I, um, am I writing what feels authentic to my experience? And, and not just my experience, but how I see the world. And if I am, then then, um, you know, I don't go, f I, I can't think about it. Uh, I don't have this either or idea about an audience at all. Um, and in terms of contract with the reader, when I'm writing nonfiction, my contract with the reader is that I, if I'm writing a memoir or, or an essay or doing some reporting, my contract with the reader is I will be as truthful as I can possibly be and I will be accurate if I tell you a fact, I've checked it. And when I'm writing fiction, my contract with you is, I may draw on real experience, but I have no allegiance to the facts whatsoever. <laughs> none. None. And, um, you know, I feel like I learned through nonfiction to develop this real kind of authentic, I was there and I'm going to tell you what really happened voice. And I use it in my fiction and my nonfiction. Why not? Um, I mean, I wrote a story in The Voice called My Affair with Dan Quayle. And, uh, and it was fiction, but... <laughs> We're glad to hear it. <laughs> but by the time I got finished with it, I thought, maybe it's not. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, that's all for me. Dorothy? <laughs> oh, God. Um, I've never written about Dan Quayle. <laughs> um, I'm working on it. 
I have a, I'm fortunate. I grew up in the women's movement, and I grew up particularly in the lesbian publishing world. I have a circle of other lesbian writers that I basically write to and for, uh, and with whom I trade work. I've also developed a um, relationship with a large number of readers one-on-one -on -one over the years. Uh, but the reality is that almost any one thing that I write tends to be aimed at a very few people. Um, I wrote a piece called Her Body, Mine, and His that was essentially aimed at two people. One, uh, a young woman I knew who had given up sex, and I was trying to convince her that, in fact, sex was important. Uh, and one, a young gay man I knew who was dying. When I wrote Bastard, I was aiming it very, very specifically um, at other young girls in that experience. Uh, and I had a kind of standard in my mind of what would be truthful and what would be a lie. And I had the good fortune to have a few readers whose judgment I absolutely trusted. It, but it does, it's not, it, I hate those things where people get up and they say, I'm writing for history. Um, <laughs> but kind of I'd like to write for history. <laughs> <laughs> The difficulty is I don't trust history, um, but I trust the women and men who I talk to directly about what I write. Always, though, I'm writing for working class perverts. That's who I look for. <laughs> and they're the ones that get it, because you know how you'll tell a joke and there'll be some people going, what? Um, you're telling, you write, I write for the people who get the joke. <laughs> Nicole? Um, I'd say um, I, I mostly write for African-American lesbians and, and those who share my experiences. Um, I think sometimes, too, I write for people, those people who are hard to reach as well. I remember I had a reading, well, Malki and I, the woman in my group, had a reading at Mosaic Books. And we were talking about the fact that Malki and I could not separate the personal from the political because mm -hmm. these things work together with us and our experiences. And this woman was all the way in the back, and she said, you know, I just wish you people would relax, you know. And I, you know, and I was very nice to her, and I told her, you know, well, <laughs> the only black thing, the only thing that black people can do is relax their hair, and we get flack for that, you know what I mean? So that was just <laughs> too much for me to handle. But anyway, that is my audience. But two, um, I make sure that I read for people who don't know what I'm saying, don't like what I'm saying, um, but do, at some small part, want to hear it. Like, they want to hear that, uh, that something is wrong, that maybe I'm enjoying myself just a little too much, you know what I mean? <laughs> and taking stuff for granted, too. Yeah. You know, I went up to Sarah Lawrence, and they were registering for classes, and people just took for granted. It said feminist text, and you didn't have to say mostly European feminist text. It didn't have to say mostly white American European. All it said was feminist text, and people went right to it, you know? and just taking that stuff for granted. But that's my audience, mostly African-American women and mostly the people that I can't reach. Mm -hmm. Millie? Mm -hmm. You know, I think about this, this question of, of readers in, in a number of different ways. One is that when I'm, when I'm writing, um, if I'm writing fiction or poetry especially, I try not to think about it at all when I'm in the process of writing and in fact mostly don't think about it when I'm actually writing. When it comes to thinking about publishing, it's another story. But 
I know that with my book of stories, my Jewish face, um, which w was a collection of stories that I wrote over a period of time and mostly thought about separately, and so I hadn't really thought about how that would be read together. When that manuscript was put together, and um, in the few months before it came out, I was waking up in the middle of the night, every night, terrified by what it would mean to have all that read together, have those stories read together, and what that would reveal about me. You know, I was totally terrified, and I would say to myself, like a mantra, these words um, of Nadine Gordimer's. <laughs> she said once she tries to write as if she's already dead. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say to myself, I try to write as much as possible as if I were already dead. And so, so, that, would, so that would comfort me and, and make me less afraid about what, what it meant to be read. So that's, that's one response, which is to try not to think about it at all and to try not to think about how it's, how it's going to affect other people or what this is going to expose and so on. The other side of it is, um, and this also affects how I write, how I think when I'm writing essays, often which come from speeches that I've given, where I'm thinking totally about clarity, about wanting to reach who I'm talking to, and so then it's a matter of who do I, who do I think of who do I think of as my audience when they're sitting right in front of me, for example, where it would be kind of foolhardy to ignore the fact that there are real people <laughs> sitting there who I really want to say something to, and I want them to understand what I have to say. Um, a lot what I found is what is in my way in reaching my audience is anti-Semitism because a lot I'm talking about things from a perspective as a Jew, a lot I'm saying the word Jew, I'm talking about Jewish subjects and that anti-Semitism either as hostility or as indifference is sometimes interfering with my audience's ability to hear what I have to say. Um, or my audience's interest in what I have to say, um, that can be very discouraging. I guess, and I guess the third thing that I want to say about it, and this is something that I learned when I was living in various holes in the wall, holes in the earth, I want to say, like um, a cannery town in um, mid-coast Maine, for example, which is one of the places where I lived when I was editing Sinister Wisdom uh, magazine, is as a writer and as um, as a writer, you discover that your work ends up places where you would never expect it. I mean, I would get letters at Sinister Wisdom from people from who were living in places like I was, where they, you know, didn't know any other lesbians, where they were completely isolated, where somehow the work had reached them. And I always find that a, a tremendously moving experience. You know, and I still do now that I'm living back in New York City, find it a tremendously moving experience when people will say to me, I read your work. You know, who am I that they should be reading my work? There's something about that that is, that is incredibly impressive and powerful. So I guess that's the unknown factor of the audience. You know, who knows where my work is going to go? And what I want is, you know, to give it the strength to find, you know, to, to reach the ears it needs to reach or something. Um. Does anybody want to add anything to that? If not, I have another question. Okay. Um, there, was, there was a comment that you made when you started, Dorothy, when you talked about the relationship between literature and publishing, if, if, and if what kind of necessary relationship even exists between the two. And I just wondered if, if you and everybody else could follow up on that. And I'm thinking specifically about the relationship between um, 
uh, mainstream and women's presses in the 90s, in the 80s and the 90s, and what has happened since the 70s when a lot of those presses were first started, and how, you know, where you're all publishing is one part of that, but what you're all reading, you know, as writers yourselves is another part of it, and how, how you view those interconnections, um, whether you see things as a continuum, as a hierarchy, as alternatives. Uh, I'm just curious to hear your thinking about this, and I don't know, maybe since you, since you introduced this subject, Dorothy, maybe I'll ask you just to go first on it, since you had started thinking about it. You've asked about five questions. Yeah, well, you know, this way everybody has something that they can respond to, you know. Okay. I'm, just, I'm trying to avoid the answer that says yes. <laughs> My favorite. Oh, God. Um, I don't think you can think about publishing uh, when you're writing. Uh, I think that if you do, basically you stop writing and start pacing back and forth, wringing your hands. Uh, or I do. If you start, I believe that constructing a piece of work to sell is death. Uh, it's, it's, too, it's about thinking about what other people want rather than what is really important to you. And I believe good writing, good storytelling is about passion, uh, what you deeply care about and what is most important. Now, having said that, I absolutely believe um, that writing and publishing are political and that it is not possible to... It's kind of like it's zen. You have, to like, you have to keep it in the back of your mind that eventually when you get this story shaped, it's still going to go out there in the world and you're going to want to put it in, in as far and as wide an audience as possible and hopefully structure that audience by how it's presented. Um, I've had a pretty good experience working with the trade press in the last year. However, I don't think this would have happened if I had not written Trash and published with Nancy Berriano and learned how to write uh, working with a lot of other lesbians who are really fine writers whose works are not getting the attention that my work is getting. Um, and I believe, I absolutely believe that it is dangerous to be a queer writer in a world without queer presses. I believe that, um, I think they will be weaponless. Is that a good way to put this? We will have no defense. Um, I mean, I may write some bad books. I'm afraid I might just, you know, writers live a long time. They write obsessively. I might write something, then the lady at the at Dutton will go, what? And I need to know, um, particularly if I write something that's particularly lesbian, although I'm not someday sure what that is, uh, that I, there's a place I can take it that will understand it and that I have an audience that will continue to be educated and shaped by the existence of lesbian and gay presses. Now, there are damn few of them left. Uh, and keeping them alive means work. It was really hard to get a contract with Dutton that would allow me to continue publishing with Nancy Berriano. It had to be done very deliberately um, and miserably, uh, some places. But it was possible. I believe it is possible. But you have to make a decision that it's important, and you have to be clear why it's important for it to work. Now, my complaints with the lesbian and feminist and queer presses, you don't pay us enough. Um, so far as I know, except for the Estrella grants, there are no specific lesbian awards that will make it possible for a lesbian writer to survive while she improves her work and learns her craft. Given that, you either do what I did and ruin your health working in the computer industry, writing all night long, um, or you find another way. I think it's time we created some different alternatives. 
I work with a lot of young writers. I push those writers to send their work to both the lesbian presses and the trade presses. I believe that you can dance with the devil. You just have to do it very carefully and very consciously. And I'm surprised sometimes by the, by the fact that some of these people that I assumed were devils aren't. You can't believe how many queers there are in the publishing world. <laughs> oh, Lord, and how much they love good books and how desperately they search for them. When you collect on that, everything works. And I think you have to really hunt for it and work for it. Great. I suspect people have all different kinds of answers to this. Um, Melanie? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, mean I, I have published um, pretty much entirely with the feminist presses, um, and that includes a stint, as I said, with Sinister Wisdom um, as a publisher, and I published for a while Sinister Wisdom books. Um, I've self-published. I've published, you know, my first book of poetry, my only book of poetry, was published with Mother Root, a press which is now out of commission. Um, my book of stories was with Aunt Lute books in San Francisco and my book of essays as well. And I guess I'm pretty committed um, to keeping my works um, with the small presses, with the feminist and lesbian presses. And I say this not as you know a moral imperative for, for anyone else, but I've, I have a sense that of tremendous gratitude and appreciation for who published me when I wasn't known and of wanting to pay back in kind you know, now that I have some name recognition to keep my name with the press that can use it to make that an option for um, younger, newer writers. Um, and I'm grateful for what Dorothy says about recognizing, I think this is, the, this is the imperative though, that we all need to recognize the connection between um, the survival of the independent Recognizing, I think this is the, this is the imperative, though, that we all need to recognize the connection between um, the survival of the independent women's and lesbian presses um, and our survival as lesbian writers. That wherever we choose to place individual books, that to recognize that if those presses go, um, not only our safety net, but the means by which young writers, new writers, will come into publishing will be gone. And that we need to make it our business to make sure that those presses survive. I think, Dorothy, that um, even though there, there are perfectly wonderful people in the publishing world, including lots of lesbians and gay men, and you know, people go into editing and publishing because they love literature, I think the fact of who owns publishing companies is a really scary question, and the fact that so many of them are being bought up by the same oil companies and so on, that that's something to really keep in mind when we think about what we do with the rights to our books, how we make sure we can get them back, um, what, you know, what we keep in our own hands about, um, about just about the rights, the rights to our own work and the necessity of keeping alive the independent presses. I think that's real important. Hmm. Hmm. Nicole, what do, you, what do you see this as? What do you see yourself publishing? Well, I feel like this is a history class because I don't know <laughs> the history of a, the women's bookstore. <laughs> it's it's kind of sad. Um, you know, mosaic books. Yeah, mosaic books. Um, 
but but I do know Kitchen Table Press. Um, and I'm very thankful for, for Barbara Smith and, and Orgy Lord for helping us out. And I don't know um, how quite to respond except to thank Barbara very much for her help and that that was the only source, that was the only people <laughs> that we had to go to. And I can only imagine what would have happened if Kitchen Table Press were not there. You know, I can't respond and, and um, say what would happen. I don't know what would happen. I mean, I guess people would keep on reading. I, um, I'm thinking now that that is the, the new way to get published. There's a lot of people uh, reading poetry and then people coming to it and, and through word of mouth, people say, well, oh, we have a publishing company that's starting up and you know, why don't you be the first book uh, published? Um, Harlem River Press that, that published our book is fine and, and I like that, but I would prefer to be published by <laughs> a woman of color lesbian uh, publishing company. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Great, great. <laughs> okay, Blanche. Um, I'm I'm definitely mainstream published. Um, if you consider the Village Voice mainstream, and I guess it kind of is. Um, but you know, I was thinking about this because we were we were talking about this question earlier. My first novel was published by Daughters Incorporated in 1973. It had been rejected by every mainstream press um, in New York, and for pretty much consistent reasons. And then Daughters Incorporated rejected it for the same reasons too, but with them, I believed them. And maybe that was what was different. I was not a teachable person about what was wrong with my writing. And, um, <laughs> and I became teachable, um, because I figured if this feminist press was saying, well, that the same thing was wrong with my writing that everybody else has said, that well then it, it wasn't the patriarchy wasn't the problem, my writing was the problem. <laughs> and, that was a very big help to me, it really was. I got the lesson all the way in, you know, I got it. And um, <laughs> the, the Village Voice was a, a really important experience for me because they encouraged me to be a bad girl. You know, they said, go be a bad girl and write well and that's really all we care about. And that was tremendous, that was tremendous. Um, and I was also helped by a, a, a Michael Denany, who's a very out gay male publisher um, who published my second novel. And you know, now it's like, I think, well, people say, what about homophobia, you know, where, where I publish? I publish with Knopf. And I say, I don't, I don't find it there. I don't find it there. And that's just the truth. I don't find it there. And I don't know whether, um, I don't know why. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't seem to be, for me, so far an issue. And um, I mean, maybe I'm just lucky. And maybe, and I also know it's because of, of a lot of taking it on the chin that a lot of people have done um, about, about lesbian issues. You know, in the, in the seven, early 70s, when I was thought of myself as a radical, radical person, I was very clear that we were laying alternatives so far out so that everyone else had a lot of room to fill up the middle. And somehow I feel like I became one of the people who came in and filled up the middle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's all I want to say. I have another issue I'd like to talk yeah. about. I was li really listening very carefully to what Nicole was saying, and I was thinking about 
What you said about the um, whiteness of the room here. To, to, no, I, I, you know, I grew up as a white Southerner, and, and in in the South when it was when it was uh, still segregated, and I grew up in a right-wing race upfront racist family, and I really understand what it feels like to be on the wrong side of an issue, to grow up where every person you know is on the wrong side of an issue, and to discover from television that you are on the wrong side. And one of the things I really try to do is be very aware that I am a white writer and not to divide the world into writers and writers of color. And, you know, I'm interested in hearing other, other writers talk about this issue. I feel like in the women's movement in the early 70s, it was part of what killed us that we didn't talk about this issue enough. What I learned from, from this is I learned what it's like to be an inadvertent oppressor that I, I mean, I hate that I'm even using these words again, but you know, that I participate in institutional racism every day and can't figure out how not to, that that stuff is still going on, um, and that with, with a fairly high consciousness and the best will in the world, I can't figure out my way around this kind of issue. And so I try to remember from that how, how the world gets divided into writers and women writers, that it gets um, divided, divided into writers and southern writers. And, and that we, writers and lesbian writers, writers and writers of color, and, and all of those things. It's very uncomfortable to, to, to take responsibility for, for the wrong other side of this. I'm much more comfortable talking about, um, about my own oppression than I am about talking about what I learned from this much tougher lesson. Um, because if I'm going to understand what it means to be white, I might have to understand what it meant to be like my husband, who didn't understand what he had done wrong. You know, anyway, this is sort of off the subject, but I'm really, um, I'm really, I'd really like to hear this talk about. Um, well, as an African American, my voice is very important to me, and it, I don't know, I didn't play on the whiteness of the room, but it just disturbs me that there aren't a lot of people of color in the room. And, and it also disturbed me, too, about the panels as well, because myself and Barbara are the, are the only representative ones here, and no Asians, no Native American women, period, you know. And this may seem to a lot of people, you know, not too important, but that's all right. But it's important for me to know that there are black lesbians out there. And to me, it's important to know that there are Asian lesbians out here. When I was growing up, when I was coming out, I thought the only lesbians were white. <laughs> But that was because when I went to panels, I didn't see any women of color on the panels. And it's not so much the dividing of, of, of women, women of color writers or lesbian writers in general. It's not so much. I draw on that strength sometimes, but sometimes, too, I need my own space. Do you know, do you understand what I'm saying? And, and it has nothing to do with, with hating the whiteness, and it has nothing to do uh, with the separation, but sometimes you just need your own space. You know what I mean? And, and this is a lesbian, um, panel, and this probably could not have been a gay and lesbian panel because we need to discuss lesbian issues. And the focus of my writing is, is focusing on African-American issues. And this is something that I know about and only I can speak of, you know, and direct it to other African-American uh, writers. I think that's very important to me. And I would say also that, I mean, one of the things that has changed over the years is that we certainly know that all these people are out there. 
right. that these writers right. are out there and that these audiences are out there. And I think that um, also it's, it's interesting what you said before about um, the readings and the way in which readings have become a vehicle for connecting with audiences, right. and particularly with poetry, in a way that wasn't true um, for a long time. Um, so, okay. Does, did you want to say something, Dorothy? No, you're just looking at me like that? Just listening to you. Oh, okay. Um, let's, let's continue talking about this, but also to talk about it in a, in a slightly different way. I'm interested in talking about um, lesbianism, if you will, as a genre. <laughs> and I wonder, when we're talking about writing, has, you know, we, I mean, I appreciate uh, the comment that Barbara made earlier about sort of the, the new boom with, with qualifications. And I wonder, I mean, what is going on with this new boom? Has lesbianism become something like regionalism? Is that, is that what, it, what it now is? And how do you see, I mean, is, is, is the, assuming that there isn't something coherent that can be named as lesbian literature or lesbian poetry, and assuming that we need these kinds of adjectives before it, um, what is this writing about? What is this thing that, that is so amorphous and that when it's not around, we recognize the lack of so easily and so clearly? Um, what is this thing that we're trying to talk about? No, nobody, everybody's <laughs> gonna glare at me. No one's gonna, no one's gonna answer this. Oh, I'll bite. <laughs> I like to say that literature belongs to the dispossessed. I'm not the first person to ever say this, that's for sure. But somebody said that, you know, the winners write history and the losers write poetry. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, another way of uh, way to put that is that literature belongs to the, the Southerners, the Jews, the blacks, and the, the homosexuals. It's the outsiders who understand something about, about how to talk about society. You know, we're not participating in power in the same direct way. I mean, I think that stance of being the outsider is very valuable. And the, the fact that, that lesbianism has entered the, the, the range of a, of a kind of regionalism has to do with, with the fact that people seem to know we exist now, you know? I mean, women's sexuality was really sort of historically defined as an absence, you know? Um, I, I guess y'all know what I'm talking about about this, right? I mean, do I need to develop this? You know, women's sexuality was seen as entirely as a response to men. Um, uh, the, I have this crazed character in the thing I'm writing now who says things like, you know, the male orgasm is related to procreation. The female orgasm is related to nothing. You know, it's by its nature revolutionary. And uh, that, that, I guess I'm not explaining this very well. But, um, I think that finally people know we're here. It's not like, let's have, let's have a gay panel. And, oh, by the way, let's invite a couple of, of women. Um, that lesbianism actually exists. Um, and, and so we, we become a viable way to look at the world. There, I'm finished. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm struck by the, the people finally know we exist, which sort of by implication <laughs> suggests that until people who weren't, uh, I mean, I know you don't mean this, but there is something about people who weren't us until they knew, then we didn't exist, but now they know, and so now we do, and... <laughs> But, um, and obviously there is something, there's something to the fact that um, it's become a subject that non-lesbians now will address at times or now consider worthy of occasional notice. 
But I think there's, I think that it is very much tied with, whether by design or not, with a political confluence. I mean, gay and lesbian issues politically are very hot right now. I don't need to tell people this. You know, people are alive with brains, <laughs> and that, you know, and that something is going on politically that makes um, our work also noteworthy for, for non-lesbians. Um, I don't know what to say about it more than that. I don't think it's a genre. I don't think lesbianism is a genre. I think lesbianism <laughs> is first and foremost an experience that some of us are lucky to get to have. Um, <laughs> and I mean that, I mean that because not all, you know, not all who would like to have it are lucky enough to get to have it. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's true that it's still a privilege in some ways to even get to have the experience of it, but that, and I, you know, I wouldn't want to, it, it, it sounds like the part of queer theory that um, I certainly react against, which, which suggests even that lesbianism might be a genre. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, I'm sort of, I'm sort of stunned, stunned by the possibility of that. But I think, <laughs> <laughs> but I think that th that because it's it's in fashion now to a certain extent, and so some of the books get reviewed, and so Dorothy's book got nominated, um, which is not just because it deserved it, which of course it did, but also because huh? It's a fucking miracle. <laughs> well, it's all it's also that for, that it coincides with somebody else's agenda. And I don't think we should get our heads turned by that. What I don't like, I guess this is what I don't like, is when our heads get turned by that, like somehow it becomes important because they think it is, and then next year it won't be important anymore because they'll decide that it isn't. It's really, it's our experience. We'll write our literature about it, and we're the ones who are going to decide what it's worth. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I really appreciate that, uh, um, what you just said, Melanie, and also in, in your grounding genre back in experience. And it brings up something I actually wanted to, to ask about, and in particular wanted to ask Dorothy about. And it has to do with the whole question of autobiography in lesbian writing and in lesbian fiction. Because I had an interesting experience a while back of, of driving, driving home and hearing on the radio Dorothy being interviewed by Terry Gross on Fresh Air about Bastard out of Carolina. And if I hadn't known that she had written a novel, I would have thought from the interview that she'd written some sort of self-help book about sort of, you know, pull, pulling yourself up out of poverty and abuse. Mm -hmm. And there was nothing there to reveal to me that she was actually, you know, this highly skilled novelist um, who'd written a book with tremendous style. So I would like to start by asking that question to Dorothy, but then to ask all of you, you know, how do you feel about that? How do you feel that your life intersects with your work or that your life is perceived as intersecting with your work um, once you're taken as a lesbian writer? So, Dorothy? I'm a liar, <laughs> um, essentially. I think all good fiction writers are good liars. Um, however, it does begin with telling the truth about something it's just that uh, the actual detailed, everyday manufactured facts of what happened when we got up at 7 o'clock, we cooked eggs, um, 
is not ri as rich or as rewarding as fiction, which is about the construction of false time when everything moves fast and has a point, and in which you get to have revenge, retribution, and justice. <laughs> I am basically of the opinion that reality is too small for most of us. Um, but you don't get a choice about it. Um, I, remember, I remember going to see lesbians who had written novels thinking that the novels that they had written were about the stories of their lives. Sometimes when it was experimental fiction, like some the work that Bertha did, I'm like, what was really happening on page 238? Did you do that? And how did it work? And, <laughs> but essentially, all of us write autobiography. I think that to be, you begin with your own life. You begin with what you really know. But you start there. You don't stop there. I don't stop there. The greatest difficulty I've had going around the country talking about having written Bastard is there are only two things they want to talk about. Um, they want to talk about my experience of incest and how that has warped me. And then a few of them want my stepfather's address. These are not, this does not lead to any positive discussion. Um, and it doesn't appreciate what I wanted to do with the novel. You write, I mean, you have a choice. You either write novels or you write essays or you write biography. I don't know exactly how to write biography because I'm never sure about reality. I write fiction deliberately because I can construct it. I can make it have a point. And I can try uh, along the way to do something larger than write history. Great. Nicole, what about poetry? Um, <clears throat> Well, I would agree with Dorothy that um, it starts, it always starts, I think, autobiographical. And, and true, it doesn't end there. Um, I write, I don't write love poems, um, but I'm trying to write love poems just now. <laughs> and, um, I think I lost a girlfriend over it. But, <laughs> but anyway, the point is that I'm trying. So try that, that new route. Um, was it because you put her in the poem or didn't? I, no. Oh, Dar I um, did put Dorothy her in just poem. asked, did you lose this girlfriend because you put her in the poem or because you didn't? <laughs> <laughs> well, the poem wasn't that good. That's the worst <laughs> but I tried. <laughs> I tried. And since I can't sing, so. Uh, um, I, I don't know. It's kind of weird with poetry. You, when you start writing poetry, you always write, I think, you always write about yourself. And then you go through all that cliche stuff until you find your own voice and your own style um, and your own diction while you're reading. And the most important thing, too, is while you're writing is to read a lot as well. Um, and I found that I, I found my voice that way. But it, for some reason, it stays autobiographical. And I try consciously um, to try different things um, abstract poems, whatever, but it seems to always go back to some autobiographical, and maybe it's just not my time yet <laughs> to, to grow um, in that way. Um, but I, I, I would agree with, with Dorothy on that. Much? Hmm. I often can't tell the difference between what I made up and what really happened. <laughs> and sometimes I think call we're getting deep insights into fiction writers here. <laughs> You know, sometimes call people in my family by the n names that I've made up for characters that are sort of like them. And, uh, 
You know, when I was a little kid, I tried to tell my family that some bad things were happening to me, and they said I was making it all up. And so now that's what I do. Um, and when they say, you wrote what? And I say, I made it all up, you know? And, um, the, you know, fiction seems to me that it tries to represent something about our real experience, but it, it, you know, fiction is like real life, only more so. Yeah. And, and um, I, you know, I really, um, when I'm writing fiction, I don't really care what happened. And um, I only care about whether I can make it happen on the pa page. And, um, and then it's, it's, it feels true. You know, writing an essay is a completely different thing. Um, people always think if you write well that what you're writing about is true. You can be writing about rabbits talking and they'll think that, you know, you're secretly a rabbit or something. I mean, they really will. It's amazing what they think you did. Our, my second novel was about, um, you know, a 92-year-old um, blind woman. And, you know, it's like, well, how, who, how'd you know her, you know? Didn't. Um, but, you know, you don't want to say that because they, they believe your work. You say, well, I met her through the mad in the paper, like the guy in the book, you know. You know, then you write, I wrote 100 pages from a male point of view. I thought, what is wrong with me? You know, why have I done this? And, um, you know, people come up and they say, I'm so sorry about your sister. <laughs> and, <laughs> my sister called me up. She said, how old was I when I died in your book? And, uh, Yep. <coughs> I'll stop. <laughs> I could say yes to everything everyone said so far. Although I, um, I don't know. I also I have this sort of fascination with with the science fiction type um, jiggling with reality, where um, you know somebody doesn't put salt on their food and all of history changes because of it. You know, that, that sort of um, how, how everything sort of hinges upon every other detail. And when I, when I sit down to write using my own experience as a base, which I often do, um, I'm haunted by, well, what happens if I, t if I leave out the salt? Then nothing else will be true. And it's something that I really have to wrestle with sometimes is to find the freedom to just make something up. It's not something that comes really easy, easily to me, even though I, like I think many other children, um, people who were abused as children, am a very good liar. You know, and I think that's a lot of you know, where my you know, fiction writing comes from is the skill as a liar that I developed you know, as, a, as a child. But I still have this, this kind of superstition about um, reality that I find is, is something that I, have to, that I have to wrestle with. Um, what, what is it um, that you think inspires you um, as writers in terms of other literature? I mean, we've heard, we've heard ver already various versions of the inspiration, um, your own experience, your own lives, your autobiographies, and the writers on the panel before us. <laughs> and, be, I wonder if there are particular books, particular writings, particular kinds of writing, or fantasies of writing that inspire you. Stephen King. 
I read, I need to loosen up. This is getting very tense and very structured. And I read trash. Do people read trash? <laughs> I read garbage. I go and I read those romance novels with the hunks on the cover. And I don't even fuck those boys. I read, um, I read all that science fiction. I read porn. I read really wretched stuff so I can feel better about myself. <laughs> I read out all the poetry I can find, some of which is marvelous, but a lot of which is really claptrap, but it makes me feel good. Um, it's, I feel like, as a writer, I need an enormous amount of material going in so that I can put a little bit out. And I need, I need to see things that I didn't know and didn't believe and somehow be persuaded about them, because that's essentially what I try to do. I, I read everything I can find that's written by lesbians or gay men, everything I can find, religiously. Um, but there's not near enough of it, near enough of it, and I think they all lie, so I read all that science fiction anyway, I'm sure all those people are queer. <laughs> just, so, I believe all good poets are inherently queer on some basic level, so it doesn't matter, I just read them. And it, it, you can't control how it's going to feed in and feed out again, you know? I also read my students, I read young lesbian writers because um, they write very differently than I do. They teach me something. And Lord, some of the ones that are gonna come out in the like, next three, four, five years in print, not, they've already done all that other stuff. <laughs> They're just frightening how good they are. They don't have any of the fears that some of us who are older have. Their ideas of what they can do are just enormous. Well, but between poetry and youth, I think you're doing a major segue into Nicole. <laughs> I read, I read stuff actually that isn't published yet. Um, the women who read and read at um, poetry readings and stuff like that, they have little chat books that they sometimes publish themselves, and I read that. And I read a lot of history since you know I don't know very much about real history. <laughs> I know about his history, but I don't know about my own. So I try to catch up on on that, especially the era of the Reconstruction period. You know real good stuff, and a lot, lots of poetry. I don't read, um, I haven't read any um, contemporary, I guess that's what you would call it, contemporary poetry, but I read Audre Lorde's poetry and reread and re-reread Audre Lorde's poetry and Pat Parker's poetry. Um, stuff to me that is still very important, and it's no matter how many times I reread the stuff, I still get something else out of it that I need at that point in my life. It seems like I always read an Audre Lorde book at exactly the time that I need to hear what she is saying, you know. Um, and definitely very strong black women like Asada Shakur, her autobiography, and uh, Angela Davis' autobiography, and um, stuff written about and or by Ida B. Wells, um, and Fannie Lou Hamer, just very strong women. Great. Um, I think the, the kind of literature that inspires me is, I don't find very much of it, I have to say. It's, um, I think when I was very young, I imprinted on a certain kind of story, and I'm always looking for it. And it's about um, how, people get, how people find the struggle. It's that. It's how people find the struggle and get drawn into it and get to participate in it. Um, and I'm always looking for stories about that. So, for example, Nadine Gordimer's work is really important to me because 
And I guess why I say I don't find that much of it around is because certainly writers in our country don't, not that many of them write in a political context. They don't see themselves in a political context. And so I'm always sort of disappointed by books that don't see um, the joy and excitement of what it means to live a political life. People haven't written very much about what it means to live a political life or about that experience, and I'm very hungry for that kind of literature. So Nadine Gordimer, as I said, or I've just been reading two books that are recently, fairly recently back in print by Josephine Herbst, who was um, a radical left um, feminist writer of the 20s and 30s, and most of her work isn't yet in print. You know, and a biography of her by Eleanor Langer that was quite wonderful. But it's about people, often women or working people, who manage to um, participate in the larger social struggles of history. And I want people who are doing that kind of work also to write about it. Blanche? Mm -hmm. I always say I don't read much because I'm too busy watching television. <laughs> and <laughs> There's somebody in the audience, we used to write each other notes saying, can you, we both watched The Young and the Restless, we used to write each other notes saying, can you believe that Brad is still in the cage, you know? <laughs> um, and I, I have such a deep conviction about my own intelligence that I believe if I'm watching television, I'm doing something really serious, you know? <laughs> Take myself very seriously. Um, but in, in terms of writers who, who I really care about, the, the piece of fiction I think I admire most in the world is a novella called Pale Horse, Pale Rider by Catherine Ann Porter. And, and the essayist I admire the most is uh, Joan Didion um, because of, I, I've learned the most from her as an essayist. And, and Porter, in 100 pages, she writes a novel about love, death, and war. It's, and it's just so exquisitely beautiful. It's, um, you know, I've probably read it 15 times. I've read it out loud three times. <laughs> so. Great. Okay, well, we, I mean, we have enough questions up here that we could go on um, way past midnight. But um, I, I'd like to think that one of the attractions still of actual live events is at least the possibility of being interactive. So with that, um, anybody out there have any questions? We can throw this open. You've heard a lot. I'm sure there's lots more questions out there. If there aren't, we'll just keep on going. A little bit. Hmm? You get one, baby. Oh, okay. Yeah? <laughs> Do I remember any? <laughs> helping me here. <laughs> this is sad because I don't remember any of my stuff. It's all written down. And she's holding up the book. Okay. There's no escaping. All right. One poem coming up by popular request. Um, 
every time I read this poem, I tell people I can't sing, so just use your imagination. It's called the new mispraise the Lord. Farmer's <laughs> <laughs> like my mom, you know. Thank you. All these, all these professional dykes here. I feel. <laughs> <young>. <laughs> Okay, please use your imagination. <laughs> way in the water, way in the water, children, way in the water, God's gonna trouble the water. Hi, y'all. I'm Miss Mary, but people's calls me Missy because they say I never miss the point. I'm also a God-fearing woman. I mean, I pray and things are all right by me. Now, don't get me wrong, I ain't blind. I know God only helps those who help themselves. And I also know that Jesus was a black prophet who was lynched by Roman soldiers 2,000 years ago. Now, even I knew since I was wee old that ain't no way a man could live during that heat and that time and have white skin, blonde hair, and blue eyes. <laughs> I don't want nothing from nobody, and I don't owe nothing to anybody but the good Lord above. That's why I give praise every day. God gave us Larry Davis, Malcolm X, and Stephen Biko. I don't believe in a dream Martin had that blacks are supposed to be meek and abide by the Bible. I agree that his bringing together blacks for freedom by way of religion was a good idea, but I think we've been obedient for too long. Now, I know I just said I was a God-fearing woman, and I know that the Bible says to turn the other cheek, but Lord, that one's been slapped too. <laughs> now, I don't never propose violence, but seeing what's happening to young black people and older black people and poor black people everywhere, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is becoming more appealing as I grow older. Way in the water, way in the water, children, way in the water. Missy's gonna trouble the water. Great. Well, it's good to keep us honest. Remind us that we're here talking about work. <laughs> There's a reason for it. Okay. Now then, shall we continue to question each other? Or does anybody out there have any other comment or question? Because I've got another one I'll inflict on you if you don't rise to the occasion. We've probably got about, what, um, five or ten minutes left up here? Is that right? Five. Okay. Yes. 
<laughs> okay. Any comments, Melanie? Um, yeah, I think yeah. You can say here's my book. I think you should read your contract. I think you should know that whoever the editor is who's signing you on um, may not be there when your book comes out to push your book, and that you may be going with a house that might be committed to it now and might not be six months from now. Cover your back. You know, know where your exits are like anything else. <laughs> and what about to somebody who's actually working in the house? What would you have to say to her from, from um, the other side? Try to keep your superiors honest. <laughs> uh-huh. Anything else? Go to lesbian and gay readings. If you're mm -hmm. in the publishing industry, yeah. go. Yeah. A lot of young, mm -hmm. interesting writers. Mm -hmm. And do as much as you can to protect your writers. Yes. Yeah. Anything else? OK. Anybody else? All right, but if you're good. a writer, get a good agent. <laughs> you know, don't trust them. If you're a writer, get a good agent. Talk to somebody who's a writer and ask her, who's your agent and do you trust her? And she'll or, say yes. Or join the writer's union and yeah. go and use their files. They have agent files. Yeah. And they always need members. So there's that too. But, um, I, but I also want to say something, and this is um, not to negate the need and desire and real value of being published, which is that I, you know, I. I teach writing a lot, and I hear people, you know, they, they write their first poem, and already they want to publish. And it's sort of like, remember your priorities. The priority is to be the best writer that you can be. And don't, you know, don't get too caught up in, in the, the publish, in this, the whole, um, the circuit and the glamour and the grandeur. Writing's work. It's hard work. You have to really want to do it. And, you know, just remember that the priority is to be the writer that you need to be. You know, and that, that goes much beyond, like, who, which agent you're going to find and what kind of advance you're going to get this time around. Okay. Um, yeah, Barbara? Yeah, I wanted to say something about publishing. You said some stuff, Dorothy, a few, um, a few, I don't know. A few hours ago. <laughs> I, I'm really intrigued by this whole, this whole thing about publishing and where you take your work. One of the things that you said was that, you know, of course, that you have a commitment to le the lesbian and gay press, but the thing is that they don't pay uh, enough for the work to make it viable <laughs> to live. And that's because, of course, particularly as far as women's press is concerned, they were never capitalized, you know? And it's just such, it's such a hard call, you know, because I believe that people should take their work where it's going to be best published, you know? I don't, I mean, even though I'm running and have run an independent press and has, have published primarily with the independent press, I don't think that there's a hard and fast rule about the best thing to do. But the thing that Melanie said about what their interests are and why they're doing it, you do have to cover your behind seriously. Because the thing is for them, it is a trend, you know? It goes in circles. Twenty or so years ago, black publishing was big with some of the commercial publishers. They dropped us like hot, like hot potatoes, and then we continued to publish ourselves anyway. Now black publishing is big again. Five years hence, it probably won't be. <laughs> and I don't really think they're interested in lesbians of color. I don't have any impression. The person, the first lesbians of color to be published by commercial publishers, now of course Audrey's uh, work 
it was uh, her poetry was published by Norton. All of her prose was published by independent publishers. And I think that's because they didn't quite understand what the poetry meant, you know, so. <laughs> but the prose was so explicit, they said, oh, no, no, not this, not this, you know? But I think it's a very hard call, but I, I think so many of the things that all of you have said are so wonderful. It's been a marvelous panel. And now, as a panel, we have one question for you as an audience to answer a, a point of curiosity. Um, how many people are members of Penn? Stand up. How many lesbians are, are members of Penn? Or how many of you in the audience are lesbians and members of Penn? Will that deal? Two, three, four? Five? I don't see more than five. Does anyone see more than five? Okay. Okay. All right. Um, don't you think it's something weird that it's 1993 and this is the first lesbian event that Penn has ever sponsored? I don't think it's like, you know, odd. Well, all those people who would like to join Penn, come talk to me after this is over. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's okay. the other question. How many people here have ever been nominated to join Penn and been refused? <laughs> Stand up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Come see me after. Well, We're going to do some more okay. nominations. So, yeah. You have to have two books, right? high hopes for the 90s, so let's hope that, that things do change. Yeah. Good. Good. Wonderful. Thanks, Pamela. This is Thanks. Pamela Pierce from Penn. Um, and I do, I do think that the collaboration between CLAGS and Penn for this event is, is really wonderful and, and really hopefully the sign of, of many more such things to come. Because as we can see from the turnout tonight and how long we've all stayed here, we could have 20, 30, 40 forums on lesbian literature and lesbian writing. Um, let us make just a few announcements. I know you're all going to want to uh, get up and rush out, and there'll be, I, 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 is there any kind of time left? There is going to be a reception in the lobbies so that you can speak to us. 
informally without having to stand up at a microphone. But please, just um, about two more minutes of patience for a couple of announcements that I want to make and that Nicole wants to make. Um, first, upcoming events by Penn and or CLAGS um, in chronological order. Uh, Tuesday, February 23rd at 7.30, uh, the Penn American Center and the Netherlands Center of Penn are going to be introducing seven Dutch writers in a symposium entitled The Unique Qualities of Dutch and Dutch-Flemish Literature. And there's going to be a wine and cheese reception, and that's at the Penn office, 568 Broadway, room 401, following the symposium. Come, come and see, come and see. <laughs> On Friday, Mark panel. On fr <laughs> <laughs> on Friday, March fifth. On Friday, March fifth, at seven p.m., back here at CUNY Graduate School, but on the third floor, Clags will be presenting "Living the Word: An Intimate Evening with Essex Hemphill." That's on March fifth. Third floor studio, seven p.m. Then in April, on April 20th, um, from 5.30 to 10, a, a double-barreled evening like this one, Penn and Clags are again teaming up to co-sponsor two panels, this time on gay male literature, including, um, well, you heard, we heard this earlier, right? Um, John Ritchie, Michael Cunningham, and Dennis Cooper um, back here in this auditorium, and an announcement from Nicole. Um, I just want to say tomorrow, Malki and I are having a, a book signing for Nia Kumba at the uh, New Dimensions Gallery in Brooklyn, uh, which is on, uh, it's at 767 Fulton Street, um, <clears throat> excuse me, at 2 o'clock, and it's on between South Portland and South Oxford. I don't know the damage. I mean, I don't know how much money it is, but I'm sure it's not that much. <laughs> and you have another announcement? Yeah, but I can't read oh, it. Yeah, I can't oh, I'm sorry. Cheryl Clark. Cheryl Clark. Cheryl Clark. Oh, okay. She's coming to BMCC, Borough Manhattan. You just take the A train or the E train or the 1, 2, or 3 to uh, Chamber Street, and she'll be at BMCC uh, February 24th, which is next Wednesday, yeah, uh, between 2 and 4 um, in S370, and that'll be for the Lesbian, Gay, and Bisexual Club that I was formerly a member of, and there's the... Uh, <laughs> the uh, the teacher, well, instructor, and helps us out, <laughs> Richard Charlie. Uh, but anyway, Cheryl Clark will be there, so hopefully we'll see you there. Mm -hmm. And I just want to really give thanks to the Penn and CLAGS organizing committee that put this together and made this whole evening possible, and special thanks to Sharon Thompson and Elisa Solomon that shepherded us through all of this. Oh, yeah. Whoever um, got the anthologies edited by Barbara Smith, she hasn't signed them yet. So if you'd come up to the front or talk with her at the reception, she'll sign them. I would like to thank the audience for being yeah. here and for your attention and your patience. You've been a great audience. Thank you.